Helo a chroeso i bodlediad yr Academy Genedlaethol ar gyfer arweinyddiaeth a ddysgol yng Nghymru. Podlediad sy'n rhannu materion ac arferion arweinyddiaeth allweddol ar draws y sector addysg yma yng Nghymru ac yn rhyngwladol. Hello and welcome to the podcast from the National Academy for Educational Leadership in Wales. A podcast that shares key leadership issues and practices across the education sector here in Wales and internationally. I'm Sue Roberts and I'm an Academy Associate and Leadership Development and Quality Assurance Advisor with the Leadership Academy. This episode of our Leadership Unlocked series features Professor Stephen Heppel. Stephen was a school teacher for more than a decade and has been a professor since 1989. He has worked with governments around the world, international agencies, schools and communities. Stephen has been at the forefront of digital technology in education for as long as there have been computers. He has a global reputation for innovative thinking and for identifying practices that make a difference. Uh, good morning to you all and uh, welcome to our Leadership Unlocked series and um, we're very pleased to have you here with us this morning. Uh, my name is Tegwan Ellis and I'm the Chief Executive of uh, the Leadership Academy and it's my pleasure um, to, to welcome you to this, uh, to this series this morning and to welcome Stephen, Professor Stephen Heppel to join us to give a presentation um, this morning. We recognise that this is a really busy time um, and a stressful time uh, for you as leaders um, in schools and in your organisations and so we respect that you are actually finding some time out of your extremely busy day to join us um, this morning. Thanks, thanks very much. I am, um, it's, it's not a very formal presentation, I'm not going to do uh, death by PowerPoint, but there's a lot to say and a lot to cover and um, appreciate how busy you are. Um, both my daughters run schools. One's a head teacher in Dorset, the other runs a, an outdoor beach school here. So, And they, like you, you know, they haven't had a day off since February. So um, kind of interesting day to be chatting, November the 5th. So, uh, you know, poor old Guy Fawkes, we were, we were just joking earlier that he was probably the last, the last honest man to enter Parliament with a good plan, you know, but it's kind of interesting that... Um, that it was November the 5th, because that was the opening of Parliament. You know, hang on, what was Parliament doing opening on November the 5th? Well, of course, they had they had their own pandemic, the plague at that time, and um, the opening of Parliament was supposed to be October the 5th, and they had a they had a lockdown for a month, and today was the end of the lockdown, and that was that was when he was going to blow up everybody. Um, and who knows what would have happened if he had it done well. I suppose we'd all be Catholics at least. Um, it's kind of worth remembering that that same, there's an assembly in this, you know, <laughs> that same um, uh, pandemic uh, had Shakespeare locked up in um, 1906. So I think, um, yeah, I think Guy Fawkes was, was uh, 1605. I think um, Shakespeare was 1606. I might have got that the wrong way around, but the same plague anyway. And um, Shakespeare was locked away. The, the theatres were all closed because of the plague. And uh, he was locked up for the best part of a year, really. And that was when he wrote King Lear, Macbeth, Antony and Cleopatra, you know, some of his, some of his best stuff, really. So 
kind of worth reminding the kids and, and worth reminding you that, uh, you know, out of these unusual circumstances comes some interesting stuff. Isaac um, Newton was, um, that would have been God, 16... 65 somewhere around there you might have to google that but i think then you know he was locked away from for the for yet another plague and of course in those days a plague with flu or colds or you know any number of um any number of um covid type things you know and uh he was sitting there in his bedroom wondering what to do you know playing with light through the window looking at the rainbow reflections that was, that was when he wrote his um his optic um, theory, theories of optic light and prisms, you know, and, and began his work on gravity. I don't, I don't think it's not quite as simple as he stuck his head out of the window and an apple fell on his head. But there was apparently an apple tree in the garden, so maybe he was sitting looking at that when he wasn't going to work, you know. So I'm just saying, really, that that these things come round and they come round again, and for us uh, in education, it's. It's a pretty solid cycle of 75 years. Um, you know, if you look at, I mean, you know, Wales um, gave education to the world, really. I mean, everywhere I go in the world, I find, um, you know, the footprint of early Welsh educators. Um, doesn't matter if it's, you know, New Zealand or it's everywhere, really. Even even in um, even in South America, you know. Uh, so, you know, you've got a... You've got a great history of all this, and the if you go back to about eighteen hundred, um, of course, it was Bible studies, it was sun, Sunday schools, and the church. Said, you know, you know what? Everybody should be able to read that that big book, you know, or know know the stories in it anyway. And uh, and then, of course, industrial revolution, and uh, goodness knows the Welsh Valley has changed at that point. You know, fast steel furnaces and all that fast flowing water rapidly utilised and. You know, 1870 um, Education Act for us in in, in um, uh, here, and, and very similar timing in the rest of the world. Actually, the in Australia they were having the gold rush about 1865, um, I think somewhere around there. And um, you know, blimey, if we have an industrial revolution, we need people who can keep to time and then read a bit and do numbers. So, you know, compulsory primary education. So, the church said this is what we need. And then employers were saying, this is what we need. And then you come to the Second World War, again, 75 years later, um, you know, 1844 Education Act um, in Whitehall. And, uh, you know, a huge debate about the the unfairness of education, the sense that, you know, families, I mean, kids having been evacuated from London to Wales, one of my PhD students, Stan Owens, was... Um, three years working in a Welsh farm as a school kid. I mean, he, he had schooling, but he worked, he helped work out and he helped work on the farm as well. And um, there was a real sense that, that different parts of the country, different communities were at very different levels and it, you know, education needed to be leveled up. I and mean, you know, and, and the, the compulsory secondary education came along. So it was, you know, church, industry, communities, and here we are, blow me down 75 years later again, and along comes the COVID thing. And is this pandemic the next big thing? Well, I think I think it probably is. There's a coincidence of other things as well, you know, where we're running into some pretty horrendous climate change and some other things. But this feels to me 
an absolutely pivotal time. So some of what we're going to talk about this morning is how, you know, how you lead through all that, what, what you, what you do, what happens to your school in all that. And, um, and what have we learned from it so far? And one thing we've learned, you know, ignoring, um, you know, ignoring uh, Isaac Newton and Shakespeare and so on. One thing we've learned is that our kids, in some cases, actually in many cases, have really got their heads down and got on with some quite interesting work. Often, not the work we ask them to do. You know, my uh, my grand, I live with my granddaughters. You know, they're um, four four years old and and uh, seven. You know, and they um, they have schoolwork, but they've also got things they're obsessed with. They're obsessed with space as a space rocket hanging from the ceiling there for example and they're um they're you know they're they're really interested in long-term practical projects with obviously bonfire night we've been um learning all about uh, guy fogs hence me starting with that but i'm also um busy um doing some chemistry just um busy doing some chemistry and look here's the Here's the activated charcoal to go with the saltpeter. So we probably shouldn't mention this really, but we're making gum powder to see how that all goes, you know, which is quite a, <laughs> quite good. Not too much, you know, and I'm not, I promise I'm not going to London. You know. <laughs> but like, the kids are following things in great depth, where before we'd ask them to follow things in great breadth. And that's a really interesting um, departure. So the... Um, the seven-year-old is uh, is sailing. You know, look here she is. Um, you know, here she is uh, sailing. Little tiny, little tiny thing. You know, and she's racing this dinghy, and um, she picked up all her all her Royal Yachting Association qualifications. Nobody's ever reached the level she's reached as a primary school kid in the whole of East Anglia, which is where we live. You know, um, you know it's quite remarkable. And you know, if she'd have if she'd have had space or sailing, you know, as part of her curriculum, you know, she would have done a bit of sort of naming of parts, which are the planets and so on, but she wouldn't have got into the, the kind of depth she's got into of coming out and lying on the bank garden and watching the SkyTrain um, satellites go past and the International Space Station and so on. So it's kind of interesting that, that I wonder what lasts coming out of, of the pandemic and, and, I'm going to be quite provocative in what I think lasts because there are reasons for the for the for the change. And let's start by looking at some of those reasons. So one of the things we've started doing about five years, actually now seven, seven years ago, where does it go? <laughs> Was to look at the the things in your learning day that help you to be the best you can possibly be? You know, what are the things that that help your brain to be as sharp as they can be? And, you know, as a corollary, that help your behaviour to be pretty good because there's nothing produces, um, you know, fidgeting behaviour worse than disengagement. You know, if you you get into lunch and you sort of, oh, you know, you can't stay awake and you, you're not really on the money, you know, that's, that's when you start doing trivial things instead of the hard work things in front of you and we found of course that some very obvious things have a big impact on your on your brain um, and by the way those of you that are still um, in the world of testing and I have to say Wales is being a lot smarter about testing than we are in in England at the moment but you know if you still find your kids having to do tests or exams 
I can pretty much guarantee you three to five percent across the board on every kid's paper just by changing the physical environment of the exam room. So that which is a measure of how bad it's been in the past. So let's let's look at some of those numbers and say what have what have we learned? And well we we've been I've got these little I've got one up here actually. Always a relief when I stand up and I'm not wearing pyjamas, you know. <laughs> um, uh, so we, we built these little sort of the, the little boxes. They were sort of 3D printed and it's all, a, you know, we, we made the circuits up, designed them ourselves. And the box is now a little tiny box that does quite a good job of measuring it. You can see humidity, um, uh, CO2. The CO2 in here at the moment is 1,800 which is quite high, by the way. So I've been, I've been working in here since about five o'clock this morning. I, unfortunately, the, you know, the, that side of the world wakes up early and that side of the world stays up late. So I'm just going to open the window while we talk, um, which is right next door to me. And we'll see what the CO2 goes down to. Um, but I can show you CO2 in a school. Um, you know, a typical classroom, really. Here it looks like this. And Bear with you whilst I sort of dip down a bit here, but, um, you know, hello. <laughs> um, but you can see there above, you know, that the kids come in in the morning, the CO2 is 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 quite rapidly climbing up to um, break. They go out for break. The door opens, some of the CO2 goes out, but not all of it. It's a heavy, heavy gas. It hangs around and then you breathe again. CO2 goes on up to lunchtime after lunch. It dips away a bit during lunch, and then the windows are open for the afternoon. But the yellow line here is the line above which your brain is is suboptimal. So, um, you know, we were quite alarmed at the levels of CO2 we found in, in classrooms. And, I'll, you know, it's quite interesting what we learn from that as well, because, you know, I'm sitting here looking at about, um, I'm, I'm looking at about five and a half million hours of data here. So here's um, some other classrooms, and this is, again, the CO2. But now we're a bit interested in the COVID thing because, you know, we, if we want our classrooms to be as safe as we can make them, and let's be honest, um, they're not very safe, uh, then opening the doors and windows is an absolute essential. I mean, you, you're teaching in a classroom with the door shut. You know, that's uh, that's not a wise idea because the, the windows, you know, only let out, they only ventilate the top half of the classroom. So you can see here that really clearly. The, the the blue line here, the climbing blue line, is a class where they've come in in the morning, they've all sat down, and they've got m most of the windows and the door shut. It's a cold day, so they're thinking, well, you know, we, we don't want to be too cold. But you can see that's the, the build-up of CO2 there is, is pretty significant. Again, you can see whether, I don't know if you can just see there's a blue line there. That's anything above the blue line, CO2 starts to be bad for your brain. So they're, they're pretty rapidly, I mean, you know, by well before morning break, they're already sort of pickling their brains with CO2. But the other two are quite interesting because they've come in and opened the windows. So opening the window has helped a bit, but there's still quite a build-up of CO2. And, of course... Uh, if the CO2 is building up, then so are the, the aerosol emissions for COVID and so on. And the only one that's really safe here is the bottom line, where they've come in and opened the... Actually, they've opened the, the door to the classroom. They've opened the stock cupboard door, and the stock cupboard has a little window at the back, and they've opened the windows on the side of the class. And that's really 
has really pulled things down um, pretty well. So when we started looking at all this data, we realized that, that we were kind of playing at learning a bit, really. And there's, I think one of the things you, you, you can do as leaders is to say, let's really take this seriously. Let's, let's say, I wonder how, and this isn't work for you, this is work for the children to do. I wonder how we can be the best we can possibly be. Let's do a bit of a measure of our, our learning environment. Let's look at the light levels. Let's look at the temperature. Let's look at the humidity. Let's look at the TVOCs. And again, I'll give you a, a nice, this is a slightly scary thing to show you early on, but I'm, I'm going to show it to you just on the basis that you'll probably cheer up a bit with some of the other things we're going to see. So uh, if I look at the, this is, um, this is measuring TVOCs. And I'm not going to keep showing you graphs. It's like, dear Lord, you know, it's enough, enough graphs of this time in the morning. But TVOCs are those nasty smells that you get when you glue things, you know, if you glue carpet tiles down with contact adhesive, or well, when you paint with old, old-fashioned um, um, paints, or, you know, or funnily enough, when you clean surfaces. And this is a school just the other day, and you can see that early in the morning, that's about six o'clock, early in the morning, they clean the school, they deep clean the school, for COVID. And again, the point at which your brain starts to hit damage is a bit worse, really quite down, quite low. I can't quite do it, man. It's about there. So, and those levels linger for about seven hours. They, you can see they come back down. But they don't get any lower than that. I should have given you the rest of the graph, really, but they go horizontal after that. And that's the school, that's the classroom um, filling up with um, the chemical emissions from deep cleaning so one of the things we learned from that very quickly is that if we're going to deep clean the classroom we sure as hell better do it at the end of the day not the beginning of the day you do it at the beginning of the day the kids are i was in a head teacher's room with we're doing some of this work in australia i'm based in spain these days like this is um ucjc in madrid is where is where is you know which is nice for actually for a while i was um I was visiting professor in University of Wales, which was great, but it's kind of tough, you know, Rioja, Paella, Welsh cakes, you know, it's a, it's a tough call. You know? I think I'll go to Madrid. You know? <laughs> but um, we've been doing the work over, over there and, and um, you know, it's been, it's been really interesting to see um, the impact of some of these numbers on children's learning, but children love to measure this stuff and you can do it easily. You can put a, you can run a light meter on your phone. These are free apps, you know, so you can put a... Yeah, let me just show you one. Um, uh, the one I use imaginatively is called light meter, but <laughs> other things are very... You just literally hold it up and you take a... You press the button, take a photograph, and it gives you the lux level of the room that you're in. And you're trying to get 500 lux or better. That's the kind of working minimum, again, for your brain. So... You know, if you maybe if your research space is, let's see how good our test room, our exam room can be. So you want to get the lux levels above five hundred, and I'm I'll tell you I'm building them to a thousand at the moment. So what does that look like? Here's um, here's uh, let's look at a school um with a high level of of lux. So here's here's a primary school I'm working in. I'm there somewhere. I think I don't know where I am. Um, 
you can see very high light levels um, or here's um this is Eton, you know, poshest school in London and in, uh, well, probably poshest school in England, actually, uh, or Wales for that matter. And uh, it wasn't, I don't, wasn't working all that well before because look at the, look at, look at the cabinet we've got. They've all come out of Eton and they're, they're daft as brushes. But Eton is now looking seriously at their learning environment. You can see how white and bright all that is. And, you know, for a reason. And the reason is cognitive, you know, it's, um, so it gets to be quite interesting. I'm, I'm just going to go back here to my little box where I was measuring um, CO2. You can see the CO2 already down to 660-something. So when I when I showed it to you, what was that, five minutes ago? wasn't long, was it? 1,800, real levels of damage, my attention going down, my behaviour getting worse, open the window, and we're down to 600-something. And... and Look, what does that look like when we start looking at, at data? So this is um, from Dubai. And uh, we, we, so we did this work, or actually I didn't do it. It was um, Asher Alexandra, who's head teacher of, a, of a, um, an early year school in Dubai, who started doing this. And then it's spreading. It's 162 classrooms now in Dubai. And all they've done is say, let's measure the CO2. It was like, blimey, it was ever so high. Um, Partly because, I mean, partly because in Dubai, it's hot outside. So the air conditioning just keeps making the air you've got cold. It doesn't bring in fresh air because the fresh air is so hot. So the kids get breathing, no ventilation at all. So all we did was bring in plants. We brought in them. Um, well, you can just about see that holding in front of myself. We put in a plant wall in every class of one plant per kid. And you can see the numbers here are pretty, I mean, you don't have to read the small print, the... This one here, you know, this is this is um, academic attainment, really, and the green is after, the blue is before. Same thing here. But probably more interesting to you as as heads is that um, this is the data set from one child, and we, we did this for all the kids in the project. You can see that their propensity to fidget and their propensity just to be pesky, really, uh, has has improved. You know, they, they, they concentrate for longer. They... That classroom I just showed you a moment or two back, uh, and this was quite interesting. This is a, a coastal community. So hey, you can just see the classroom there. We'll come back to it in a moment. So this is a little, little school. I love, I love little schools. So little school just down the road from here. Once, you know, most of my work's not even in Europe, but, but it's nice to be working local. And... Um, little coasting school in a coastal community. And I talked to Susie, who is an inspirational head teacher. She's a, she's a triathlete, so she really understands the aggregation of marginal gains and what it does to your learning, you know. And uh, she said, well, they're, they're this group has been a bit disappointing, really. They've not, it's a one, it's a one single form entry school, so it's like a whole year, you know. And um, they've just been a bit off the pace, really, compared to the, the others. Um, so let's let's go with them. So I went into the class, and, and apologies if you heard this story before. We've told it a lot on social media lately, but the the kids were all sitting there in a pretty gloomy room, really. And you know, I chatted to them about, you know, tell me about your, you know, who are the who are the kids who are fidgeting before we get to lunch and start to sort of, you know, need need the attention of their very good teacher. She was fab, 
And who are the ones at the end of the day that they're still writing? <laughs> Don't want to stop. Tell me, Mum, I'll be, I'll be out in a minute, you know. And they, they kind of pointed when they said, who are the ones who are losing track? They'll point at these boys in the corner. It's us, you know. Because when we measured the space, we found that they weren't naughty boys. They were in a naughty corner. You know, the room was too dark in that corner, too dark, too hot, too badly ventilated. And, you know, there was quite a lot of mechanical noise from a ventilating device outside as well. Nobody, nobody could have concentrated in that space. So it was only when we started saying, well, okay, let's move everybody around in a room. And they, the, the girls said, when we, when we moved these excellent girls from the window, which was very good because the window was a bit cracked, so there's fresh air coming in, you know, even when it wasn't open. When we moved them to the boys' corner, they said, we, we can feel ourselves, you know, going over to the dark side. It's terrible. You know? <laughs> so we thought, okay, let's have a go at the room. And I, I spent some time with them, um, not a vast amount of time, but... We got all our local, oh, this is Essex local authority projects. We got all the people that do painting and lighting and everything else to come in and, and um, have a proper go at the place. And you can see, you know, the very high levels of light, all LED lights, those flickering fluorescent tubes. If you've got those fluorescent tubes in your school, you will have teachers with headaches and you'll have teachers with, um, you'll have, you'll have teachers with high levels of absence because the, you know, cutting a long story short, those fluorescent tubes, your brain um, sees the flicker, but your eyes don't. So your brain, brain's going, well, there's danger, I can see movement, and your eyes go, I can't see it, and your brain interprets that as stress. So if you're working under those fluorescent tubes, you will be exhausted by Friday. Uh, you know, any teacher will be on their last legs by Friday. And the, the difference of going to pure white LEDs everywhere, you know, in terms of the well-being of your staff is fantastic. But in terms of the engagement of your brains, it's, it's equally good. And um, I'm putting a page of links together um, for you, which will get circulated out to you all. But I'll put some links onto some of the numbers for the light. But if you know, if you go into B&Q or whatever, if you buy your light bulbs, I guess on Amazon these days, um, you'll see they list a, a, a brightness level for light bulbs, a Kelvin value. You want Kelvin values up in the 5,000 to get that very white light. Um, and, and by the way, if you go into a BMW sales room, not not that I've ever bought a new car in my life, and if I did, it probably wouldn't be a BMW. But if you go into a BMW showroom, you'll find the light is incredibly bright, and they run on pure white light at over a thousand um, uh, lux. And when you walk in, you go, "Wow, this is amazing!" You know, you want kids to walk into your classroom and go, "Wow, this is amazing!" And some of that's about light. So let's go on a bit from there because. Gosh, the time is going to run away with us before we know where we are. But another thing we started to map was, um, I'm just putting the blind down a bit here so I can see you. Lovely, lovely sunny day here, but reflections on the screen, not so helpful. You know? um, one of the things we looked at as well was um, your body. And we're kind of interested in how much blood, oxygen-rich blood gets up to your head. And of course, you know, if you're a kid, you sit at a right angle with your knees there and, the, you know, your head's up here and your toes are down here. And you've only got the one heart. You haven't got a, you haven't got a heart for your, your bottom and another one for your brain. It's the same thing. So the blood's got to go to your toes before it goes to your head um, somehow, you know, or at least it's the same 
central heating system. So if you've got two right angles in the thing, it actually slows the flow round a bit. And we know that children who are sitting very upright, you know, you've probably said it yourself, I have as a teacher, you know, sit upright and don't slump. It's the very opposite of what you're wanting them to do. You want them to have a bit of a slump because that is not good for your brain. And kids left to their own devices will kind of sit back and stretch their legs out at about 130 degrees, you know, it's a, you know, 40 degrees more than sitting upright in their chair. That's good for them. It's good for their attention. So, but movement, there's more to it than that. So let's have another look at some um, some movement data. We'll do pictures this time instead of graphs, you know. But here's um, here's children's heads, and these are this is um, Illinois University in the states did this work. So they they put people into a a, a functional MRI scanner. They're MRI scanners where you can you can keep moving, you know, and they they keep scanning. So they were giving these students actually their university students they're giving them a standardized test <clears throat> and the lot on this side they said again as you will have said to to your kids they said um uh, okay when you come in for the test i want you to sit down take take a bit of calm collect your thoughts remember that phrase and start doing the test this lot they said come into the room and just keep moving just keep walking around the test room up to the point when the test starts and then like musical chairs, sit down and do the test. And you can see the difference in brain activity, you know, simply by looking at those brain scans. These kids moved up to the last minute. These kids were calm and took a moment. And we know now that if we, if we graph um, movement and attention, let me show you, if we graph movement and attention, and this is, so here we've got um, on the vertical axis, uh, a, a measure of attention. I mean, you know, you, you could spend a PhD working out what we mean by attention, <laughs> but it's easy to measure these days, uh, of course, because we've got technology. And then, <coughs> beg your pardon, time is going across this way. So this group of children come in, to the, and they sit in the same class all day. So this is very typical, say, of a Japanese school where the kids say so in the same class the teachers come to them they don't really move much and you can see right from the first right from the first minute um the tension starts to decline and it falls away quite sharply towards the end of the day this class you know kind of typical european secondary school that the kind of whistle goes every 40 45 minutes or whatever and they change classes but then they when they're in the class, they sit in their seating plan and they don't move much. And this class, they have a zoned classroom where, you know, they've got a variety of ways that they can sit and a variety of things that they can do while they're sitting. And, you know, you can see the attention, you know, the day, the longer the day goes on, the more interesting it is, you know. And, and of course, it's, it's sort of bleeping obvious, really, that... that you know, in, in the situation where you've got a variety of seating, um, nobody's ever late to the lesson. You know, kids always arrive early because you arrive early, you get the best seats, you get the best choice of where you're going to sit and how you're going to work. So it's sort of interesting that some of this stuff is counterintuitive, but all of it is very solidly based in some very solid science. And I'll give you some links on the page I'm going to put up for you. Um, 
to some of that science. I don't expect you want to read it, but if you want to give it to the kids, they'll be all over it. And the next thing I want to say really is about those kids, because uh, it's sort of interesting. If we if we look back in history, here's, um, I'm lucky enough, I'm doing work with NASA, which is like super cool, you know, ooh, ooh, get to go and play rockets, you know. <laughs> and this is um, the actual um, mission control center from 1960s, from the moonshot. Um, there's all sorts of interesting things about it. I mean, you can see there's a slide rule here, you know, a pair of binoculars, because the only way you can see the data on other people's screens is to get out your, your binoculars and have a look. There's, um, there's a packet of cigarettes lying there, for example, and, 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 uh, and there as well. So this is the, the original room that's been, you know, tidied up and recreated from a photograph. So it's... Everything's exactly as it was. But what's interesting about that room is the average age of the people in it. So, you know, here goes the moonshot, and goodness knows it was a bit of a brave thing, wasn't it? So they bashed the thing off into space. And um, the average age of the people in this room was in their mid-20s. And bear in mind, some of the folk in there was a a few wise old professors or whatever sort of wandering around as well. So most of the kids in there were 21, 20, you know, I mean, it was, they're incredibly young. And, well, it seems like that to me, because I'm incredibly old, but, you know, we trusted youth very much in those early days. And here's another, I love this example, if I can find it, Chris Espinosa, where's that? And what I'm doing, by the way, I'm just, I've got a palette of my Zoom backgrounds over on the second screen over here, so I can just, pick up a Zoom background and, and um, you know, and sh- show it to you as a, a bit like a slide. I think it's a little bit more personal than just running, um, you know, shared screens and things. But, of course, it depends on me being able to find anything. And um, here's Chris. So Chris Espinosa, here he is. And uh, he, you can see there he was Apple's um, eighth employee, eighth employee. And he's, he's, and he's still employed, by the way, and he... He's really cross about that number eight because actually he was their fourth employee. Um, but the day they gave out the cards and the employee numbers, he was still at school because he was a school kid and he'd work at school. And then he'd go to Apple in the evening and do, you know, to work on inventing computers and then go back to school. And some of the, some of the pivotal stuff from our, our own generations, I think, often were you know, remarkably young people with very creative, very ingenious backgrounds, you know, faced with, uh, you know, I don't care if you're looking at Lennon McCartney going to art college or, um, um, you know, some of some of our great fashion icons, you know, after the, after the first, second world war, you know, where they'd all lived through really difficult times and were trusted to, to make the best of what was coming next. And I think, one of my messages to you as um, as leaders is to trust the kids. Let me show you a little bit of what happens when when you do trust the kids. A couple of examples here, really. Well, um, one of my favourites. Oh, and here, by the way, here's a class of kids, you know, where they're all in charge of their own plants. There, um, you know, because you don't just put plants in the classroom. You give each you give each child their own plant, and you say, okay, here's here's Mavis or whatever. We had a we had a lad in um, Islington who we gave a plant to, and uh, he was a pretty 
kind of patchy attender, to be honest. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't, he certainly wasn't there five days a week. He was struggling to be three days a week, really. Primary school kid, and he's a carer. His mum had all sorts of, um, uh, you know, drug-related problems we won't go into. But by the time he'd sorted out his siblings and got them into their clothes and done breakfast and got to school, it was pretty exhausting, so he didn't go every day. So one of the days he turned up, we gave him a plant. He was... He was seemingly unimpressed, to be honest, you know, like, oh, here's a, here's a plant going to change your life, you know. And uh, we, we've got a list from NASA of the best plants to make to turn CO2 into oxygen with photosynthesis. And um, obviously, because they're going to go to Mars, so they, they, all, they all need to take, they need to you go to Mars, you better take a plant with you, you know, because otherwise you won't be breathing for very long. So we gave him an aloe vera and the kids will have to name their plants so they know which which plant is which, and they obviously they're doing all sorts of experiments with them and feeding them nutrients and building little Arduino self-watering kits. So the plant becomes a focus of a whole lot of activity. But he decided to call his plant uh, Vera. Um, so he comes in in the morning, goes, hello, Vera, which he thought was very funny. And to be honest, so did we. You know, it's quite good. <laughs> He's, and he still thinks it's funny. But remarkably, he's attending pretty much full-time. So there's something about something about being part of the research community, something about that metacognition, something about the reflective practice of that task that is genuinely um, engaging. In the end, it's what the Aussies call having skin in the game. You know, he wanted to come in because he wanted to say hello to Vera and the kids get very excited when their spider plants have babies and, and so on. So we, in... in, in um, in Spain, we got a bit carried away with this and decided to give the kids the challenge of transforming their classrooms. And we we gave them different budgets, you know, and we just said, look, anything's possible. And they, uh, this was one of them. This is in Barcelona. You can see here, I think they've got a, they put an interactive whiteboard on the wall, um, but it's cardboard. And here's, uh, here's the head teacher, Phil. Here's me standing over here. And you can just about see sort of here where my fist, just behind my fist there, there's a sort of three-sided space. It's made from um, brown paper and chicken wire. You know, it's a little space you can sit in and you can see there's a space for presentation. There are curtains. Yeah, but of course, the curtains don't draw across the whole room because there wasn't any money. They didn't have much material. The amazing thing about this was the learning got better, you know, this university project, we measured all sorts of things, their attendance, their attention, their academic attainment there. We followed them on. We're still following these kids four years, five years on, you know. It got better. So how the bleep does a cardboard interactive screen? They had 10 iPads, of which two were real and eight were cardboard. So how the heck did that work? The answer was very simple. The children were role-playing future learning. You know, kids love to role-play primary, secondary. Uh, you know, my mind is like living in a Bollywood movie. Yeah, there's costume change every, every 10 minutes, you know. Um, and they were role-playing what future learning might be like. And so they'd stand in front of their, their interactive screen and talk about what wasn't showing on the screen. You know, as you can see, there's a graph here, bloody blah, blah, you know. Um, and the articulation, of course, was, was probably more important than the image anyway. But 
them role-playing future learning was better than the learning that they were doing before. So we kind of harnessed that and brought them into the university and said, well, I'll tell you what you like, you know, we give you a space in the university to, to work on. Um, I wonder if you can build that for us. So here they are, you can see they've built the whole, which is just a way, just an old warehouse, you know, and they built, so one of the things they'd been doing, they, they'd enjoyed reading about Harkness tables. I'm sure you, some of you will be doing Harkness um, tables in your classrooms. They work really well. The protocols are all, they're typically a Harkness table. Everybody sits around and the, the group may have to make sure everybody gets a word in. So, you know, it's a responsibility of the group to make sure that, you know, Gladwin in the corner actually says something because she's ever so shy, you know, and the teacher has, you know, has to sort of, keep back and listen and, and moderate, you know. They really like harness them, so they built a cardboard one. And so so we built we built that room for them. We we took everything they built for us in cardboard and we made it spend some some not a vast amount of money because the kids said we want to mash up the furniture. So you can see this is a lab stool fitted on a swiveling chair. The swiveling chairs were horrid, but the legs were good. The lab stools were comfy, but the legs were bad. So they each one of those is mashed up from two two things that have been thrown away. So we built it, and I have to say that's now one of our most popular spaces in the whole place. And we've done that a number of times. We've asked the children to be part of that adventure of designing spaces for. This is another university space designed for us by, by school children. So school children have come in and said, in particular, we want to write on the walls because... You know, we've seen how writing on the walls works when we were kids. We've seen how it works in, you know, posh schools. We've seen how it works everywhere, really. And uh, let's have some more of it. So putting them in the driving seat of investigating all this is really powerful. And it takes me really, keep an eye on time. Oh, yeah, we're doing all right. It takes me really to the last bit of all this, really, which is, well, to be honest, we could talk about this all day. I mean, it's there's so much to cover, but... It's worth starting to look at our outdoor space. And, and I'm sure some of you, because many schools have, have started to think very seriously about outdoor space and about, about you know, here's, um, this is interesting. This is uh, was on Twitter just the other day. So people are now using their outdoor space not to go outside and let's use the climbing wall or go outside and let's use the school garden, but outside is our classroom. And and for some, you know, they're saying, "Here's um, this is uh, Melbourne Girls, um, uh, Melbourne Grammar School, um, inspirational head teacher Mary." Um, and what they're saying is, you know, the revolution here is that our starting point is, let's learn out of doors, and sometimes we have to go back indoors, but only for special occasions. So they've sort of turned it all around. Here's me doing a professional development session just a little while back, actually, with a group of head teachers. I thought, well, if we're going to talk about outdoor learning, we might as well do it outdoors, you know. So I think the outdoor is becoming really significant for three or four reasons. Let's just enunciate what those are. So reason number one is the quality of the air is fantastic, uh, the CO2 is always good. You know, it's uh, the light level is spectacular. When I measured the light level in here with my 
little light meter, it was 283, I think. If I point it outside and press the button, it's it's two and a half thousand. So the you know the light levels are spectacularly good. Um, sound is very good because it dissipates, and you find yourself in, in a quite an interesting place. Um, and the very interesting bits of furniture. And we've we've been using these um, zigzag chairs, which are I think they're, they're they're actually made in Spain, but I think you can buy them. I think Space Oasis have them, other people have them, but you, you sit on that base plate and wherever you're sitting, you've got a hard you've got a hard desk in front. So whether you're sitting on a beanbag or a wet field or a, a log, you know, you just stick that in between your legs and it it sort of works. So there's a there's a lot of furniture that allows you to to use that outdoor space. And if we're trying to reduce density indoors, you're only going to do it three ways. One is by the kids coming in every other day or every other week or whatever. Two is by going everywhere in the school and using your dining room and your corridors and everything else as learning spaces. Three, by going outside. I just wanted to flag how important that outside <coughs> stuff has been to a number of people. It doesn't have to be like this. This is in France. And they've got... I, just, I, can't, I can't watch this without crying. These kids are sat in their little square for playtime and they can play in their square and they're not allowed out. And I think, how could anybody do that? You know, if we go to Japan, the kids are playing in a net above the classroom. Um, you know, that's the classroom you're you're in downstairs and you're playing in the net above it. Or if I, you know, if I go to Thailand, you know, here's a library in Thailand where the kids have to climb up the, the hexagon to be able to get to the books they want to read. It's in the library, you know. People are really grabbing hold of movement. Um, but crucially, they're, they're grabbing hold of outdoor movement. And there's a kind of irony in this because, you know, I, I do an assembly sometimes for, for schools. And one of the things we look at are other people's journeys to school. So these are some pretty hideous journeys. You know, you've got to get across. The bridge is broken. You've got to climb the ladder. The ladder isn't tied on. It moves all the time. Or um, this one is even worse, actually. You have to, these guys in Tibet, they fall off the cliff. And um, it's the only way to get to school. So... All they can do is get to school. They stay in school for half term, sleep in the classroom, go home for half term, come back again. So they try to they try to journey as little as they can. This one's quite good fun. It's a, it's a lorry in a tube on a rope, and if you wait the tube, it swings across the river one way. When you take the weight out, it swings back the other way. So they have quite a complicated way of getting in the tube to cross the river and swing back in a pendulum. But there are bad things in the river, you know. So it looks like fun, but it's not so safe. These kids spend like two or three hours, or in this case, you know, a couple of days getting to school. When they get there, they go inside, you know, shut down, sit down, learn about the world in their classroom. Then they go out and climb all the way back. I mean, think about the physics in the bridge, you know, think about the engineering, think about the problem solving, the, the leadership. So probably the the message to you here for the beginning of the morning anyway is that learning's escaped. Learning has got out of its boxes. It's escaped from the curriculum because we've seen kids pushing real depth and going a long way. And by the way, why wouldn't they be doing university courses, the Open University Technology Series 2180 courses? 19% of the people doing the, the degree modules are school students. So it's happening, you know, when we, we open Linfield Learning Village in Australia, um, 
you know, it's on a university campus and it's, it's at stage, not age school. So you don't have to wait until you're 11 or 8 or 16. You just, you just go as far and fast as you like. That's coming at you really fast, stage, not age learning. Part of the reason for that, I think, is in the last little bit of data to look at. And this was from um, Scotland um, just the other day. We were um, chatting to a group of children online and about, you know, how much time do you spend in school? Um, what have you missed about coming to school? Um, you know, what, what have you missed during lockdown? And then when you get to school, what have you missed about home, you know? And I said, just in passing, because I hold, you, hold your hands up. I said, and you could try this in assembly or try this with your kids on a Zoom. How many days a week do you need to come to school to still feel part of the school community? You know, is it five days a week or... And the average answer, the average answer was, was just two. The kids say, yeah, I just, um, you know, two, two's enough. If I come two days a week, I'll still feel part of the community. I'll see my school friends, but I can get on with my learning at home and do some really good learning and get into some depth. And, you know, I was talking to a family the other day where they said the kid hasn't done anything was set for him at all as a boy but he's just replumbed our bathroom. Now he's working on the neighbor's house, you know, so kids have gone off in that learning's escaped. And I think it, the genie won't go back in the bottle. So you're for sure looking at a learning future where the children are never all there at all the time. And that means, you know, starting to look at the spaces around you and the places where you can learn and the things that you can see and the, you know, the flora and fauna and, I don't know anywhere better than Wales because you're you're steeped in such you know fabulous um, botany, such fabulous fauna. Um, you can't throw a stick without hitting a poet. You know the community is awash with you know three or four thousand years of great learning, and it seems just natural to spill it out into the community. So three things to leave you with a. I'm doing at the moment, you might want to reflect on. One is, with a group of schools in Spain, we're now providing courses, well, we will be from um, Christmas onwards, for parents. We're saying to parents, um, I, I know a lot of you have lost your job, the COVID thing's been a disaster, um, you know, in the way that the mines were a disaster, and, you know, we've been here before, haven't we? So as a, as a, as a community, we're going to give you access to courses you can retrain and that's part of the school's um, remit I, I believe you know and um, uh, and suddenly you've got a learning community and how powerful that, that can be and you think gosh that's sort of science fiction Stephen but it's but it's not because when I started teaching which was a while ago you know um, I was teaching mode three CSEs and I was teaching black studies and the course was written by the local community for the local community and uh that's the wind rush you know coming across there and the kids all did an exam and the the exam was to go and find somebody in the community and interview them and talk to them and mode three c mode three csc's were written by teachers and schools for their local community and i'm not that old you know so this that's where you're going back to for sure locally delivered globally validated community valued um, courses and learning so that's one of the things we're trying. 
Second thing we're trying, which I, th I think is also really interesting, a little illustration here is is very early years. So this is um, this is my um, daughter's school, wherever it is, and um, beachschool.org. And again, I'll put the link on your um, I'll put the link on your I go there, but they, I'll put the link on the site for you. Um, but but they these are preschool children, three and four year old kids, who are doing heavy duty marine science um, on the beach. They're looking at the jellyfish. They're looking, you know, they get they get the sand from the beach, put it under a little digital microscope, and say, oh look, you can see little coloured spots in there. And the coloured spots, of course, are pieces of eroded plastic that are now in the sand everywhere on the coast of the United Kingdom, you know, and they learn from that. But the thing that's changed, because the grandparents and the parents come to beach school with the kids, the whole community has turned into a community, and they've just won a very big bid from the lottery fund to turn the community into a science and heritage community, you know, to, to go further with that whole idea of everybody in town is a scientist and what we're studying is our our town, you know, our our hinterland, everything around us. And if I walk down the the jetty on a on a weekend, you know, when the COVID thing's gone, the kids all crabbing are pulling out crabs, and because they've been through beach school, so they're turning the crab over and saying, "Look, this is a boy crab. You can see it. this one's in babies." They're telling the parents and grandparents and friends about the marine biology of their and the marine science of their of their environment and it's spread through the town like a plague you know that instead of catching covid they've caught learning in the most delightful way and that turns into some pretty cool things and then suddenly you know people start looking around thinking how can we be more playful with this here's our local vicar who of course you know in a in a pandemic you know she's still got to give people a dash of holy water so a new approach is to rock up at your doorstep with a water pistol to give you a a quick blast of holy water and say a few good words and move on you know everybody is coming at this with ingenuity and for me that's the best thing to come out of covid I mean, the tragedy of so much we've lost two people close close good close families friends in their families have, have died within the last um, two months here so it's all very on our doorstep hideous you know america's lost more people from the COVID than they lost in the Vietnam War, which is an amazing statistic. However, um, what we've learned from this is the acceleration of what learning looks like. We've you know, 10, 20 years of progress in 10, 20 months. And for, for you, that means asking the kids, how can we do this better? And we're going to break now to, um, in a couple of minutes anyway, we're going to break to a bit of a break and then to some comforting moments but let me just show you this from the wall of that Spanish school you know where they're saying uh, you know our classroom of tomorrow is under construction this is a permanent sign it never changes their job sitting in there as learners is to say how might we do this better and um, you know there's a thousand ways kids have loved zooming they've loved the playfulness of and they haven't loved somebody just delivering a lecture to them a bit as I'm doing, I'm afraid, but they haven't enjoyed that very much. At 11 o'clock, you better be doing RE with the, with the Reverend Jones. You know, they've, they've enjoyed 
the touch points they've enjoyed, experts beaming in. I talk to a lot of kids these days, experts beaming in to talk about what they're doing. They've enjoyed it so much. This is my um, my daughter's primary school. She's the head, remember? This is their school photo for this year. The kids, of course, weren't sitting like this. They only had one cardboard box. The kids sat in the box, took the photograph. They've been photoshopped into this lovely um, image, which I think just captures the you know, the playfulness of kids and the, you know, the zooming term that we've had behind them. They'll look back on this and remember this year. My goodness, they will. But they won't remember it as the year when it was all a bit strange. They'll remember it as the year when the path changed and everything changed. And, and my honest and absolute solid belief is that the change here is absolutely for the better. I've talked to 103 ministers of education since March. That's a flipping record, and I think there should be some medal for valour in all that, you know. I don't I don't have a collective noun, a, you know, a panic of head teachers maybe. But but interestingly enough, the ones that are being the bravest about the new world of education they see in front of them are the ones with the least to lose. They're the ones with the highest unemployment. They're the ones with you know, the communities that are wondering what on earth they're going to do for employment. They're the ones that didn't have the money to build big, luxurious, gorgeous schools, but are still working in their little village schools that turn out to be probably exactly what they needed and were looking for. Those are going flipping fast. Here's, um, I was doing a thing for the science, although it's 10.30, it's my last detail to say really, but we were collecting for the science museum the history of of computers over the last hundred years. And this is from the Science Museum, but it's a, we bought this in a market in Cameroon. We went to Cameroon and we said to the bloke man in the stall, we'd like to buy something from you. He said, what? It's a, the stall, the whole thing, I'm taking it away. That'll cost you a lot of money. Of course, here you are, you know. We took his stall, I'm sure he had another stall 20 minutes later, you know, but what's happening here is he is making telephones from other phones so he's got a heap of broken phones around the back and he's putting together working phones he's not he's not rebuilding an i an iphone 6 bloody blah, blah he's building a phone from bits of other phones i don't know anybody in wales i don't know anybody actually in europe who could do that and here's a lad with no education and nothing going for him except that he's learned from the people around him he's learned from the community around him He's learned from the needs. And if you look at Welsh history, you look at those mechanics institutes before 1870 where people were learning from the skilled crafts folk around them. Those skilled crafts, that ability to make and create, to be ingenious, turns out to be the thing that's precious going forward. Being able to do what you're told, being able to do repetition, being able to keep going without being exhausted, those, those are things computers do better than us. Rule-based systems, computers were born to follow. We were born to be ingenious, creative, playful, imaginative, brave. And that's the future of education going forward. So look around your school. Look at it through your children's eyes. Look for ingenuity and playfulness and imagination and challenge and that's the future of your school going forward. And I'll tell you what, been 
professor for 32 years now. This decade ahead is the most exciting I've ever seen in my professional career and the most fun you'll ever have in your professional career. If you feel exhausted now, it's with good reason, but I'll tell you what, going forward, it's worth the exhaustion. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. So let's pause there. You've got a breakout to do. I'm going to see you again at 11.40 to um, pick up a whole host of questions. You must have some. I'm watching, by the way, the chat window in here. Mostly people just saying good morning. Well, good morning, you know. But, um, you know, if you've got um, questions to, to put into um, to me when you come back, I'm very happy to take them and, and, um, and let's go. And then some summary things at the end. So thanks for your patience. Um, see you soon. See you soon. Hello, everybody. Thank you very, very much for joining us this morning. And I hope you've really, really enjoyed listening to Stephen. We all have. We've been really lucky and been in a breakout room with Stephen ourselves. So we haven't stopped talking the whole time. (laughs) I was a little bit worried about how many questions we were going to get this morning. But I really, Stephen, don't think it's going to be an issue at all. You evoked a lot of discussion, really this morning. So please can I ask you to keep putting your questions in the chat. Raise your hand if you want to ask Stephen a question yourself, but we'll go through. I don't want to waste the time. I want to go as quickly as we can, Stephen, to make the most of you. Thank you so much for spending the next 40 minutes or so um, doing questions with us. We really do appreciate your time. And I have to say, your little bit for me, it was the journeys to school. It resonated with me. Mm involved with a school in Nepal myself and I had to walk along a bridge just like in your picture so it it did it really brought it back to me and it it really got me you know what you said about how learning has escaped and that takes me nicely to my first question so can I ask uh, it's Rebecca Turner head teacher at a school Akravaya can you hear me yeah Hello. Hi, thank you, Stephen. It's a, it's a lovely opportunity for us all to get together, isn't it? It's wonderful collaborating across the whole of Wales. I find it so exciting. Um, and lovely to hear you as well. Thank you very much for this morning. My question is is a, an interesting one, really. With, I love the idea that learning's escaped. I think that's, that's wonderful. You know, I've been working on that for years. I like the idea that learning doesn't just take place within a, at a desk. It, it's everything we do. It's exciting. Now that it's escaped... Um, how do we ensure that, first of all, we don't lock it up again and also that it's not locked up for us? That's the important thing, I think. I, I you know I, I'm very sort of passionate about this, really, that it's, it doesn't come back down, that we, we don't have all this measurement and accountability again, again on us and how we're going to deal with that. Well, yeah, lot, I mean, lots to say about all that, that really. I mean, I, I do think the gene is out of the bottle and the kids won't won't tolerate being put back in anyway and they to some extent they're going to be in the driving seat because if you imagine a world where they're only attending three out of five days typically and with a huge you know so who looks after the children at home well 60 percent of the population working from home now and you know children gathering into little bubbles themselves you can see how that can all work so at that point, you realise we've got too many schools physically, not too many teachers. We need more teachers and less buildings, probably. So the children will be choosing which building they go to. Um, 
and the building becomes more of their clubhouse. You know, learning happens everywhere, but you know, it's nice to get together for those those sort of touch point moments that, that matter. So the schools that are trying to put it back in the box, you know, when people get out of prison, they don't volunteer to go back into prison, you know, and I'm not suggesting that schools are prisons. They're, they're lovely places, but once they're out, um, you know, they're, they go where they're bound, they're free. It's very hard to, I was talking to a, a group of kids in a school in Wales, where uh, Wales in Kent, in, um, in the Isle of Sheppey, where we turned the school over to an all through school. And we had quite a lot of stage and age. We had kids working through three levels with each other, you know, and I was saying to a little girl there who, you know, she'd had a, a, a file of naughtiness as, you know, as thick as an old telephone directory. And she'd been mayhem really much of the way through school. And then suddenly she'd been an angel for a year and a half. And I said to her, what's changed, you know, thinking it was always, oh, you know, it's the mixed age teaching that's all words. Well, sort of it was, but she just said, she said, look, it's, it's just this. She said, it's really hard to be naughty when you're looking after an eight-year-old. And it was like, ka there it was, you know. <laughs> so, you know, I think we've seen a lot of that mixed age stuff and it, we know how well it works in our families and churches and orchestras and sports clubs. Why wouldn't it work in schools too? So part of what you have to do is you have to celebrate in um I was a thinker in residence in Mark Oliphant School in um, South Australia for four years. Um, and this was an amalgam of some really tough schools. And we did everything differently. It was all through, had some mixed age stuff. There was project-based learning, which through the, through the sink at it, really. And we didn't ask anybody. We We had an annual event called Making Learning Better. And when... Everybody on the staff and other people, you know, I, I mean the broad staff and the caretaker even, you know, would put up a little poster of what they'd done during the previous year to make learning better. And some of them presented very nervously to their colleagues. And then you can see their self-esteem growing, you know. So the school became full of people who were saying, how can we do this better? How can we do this better? And anybody who doubted it, he just had to turn up for MLB, MLB day, you know, and... and um, and see how much better it was. And by the time we finished, the kids were doing the presenting, presenting for making learning better because they were, they were the ones who were leading the charge. You know, so don't don't wait for permission. Don't wait for just get on with it. You'll always have people on your staff who are a bit reluctant. Every teacher in the world wants the best for their kids. When they see how good it is, they want some of it. That's really what happens. It's simple as that. You know. I think that's right. And I think what we have to remember, you know, in Wales, as you know, Stephen, we've got a new curriculum. You know, we've been developing yeah. that yeah. over the last three, four years. Yeah. Whatever. But I think what we've got to remember is that learning is messy and it should be. And all these changes, we need to remember that we're continuously under construction or that the curriculum is continuously under just, you know, construction and that we must make sure that we carry on learning. Yeah, don't, and don't. Don't look across the bridge at England because it's ghastly there at the moment. I mean, Scotland have done some interesting stuff. And it's clearly, you know, there's a nice little historical analogy we've just talked about in the breakout, which is, you know, years ago, this used to be health. Uh, you know, health in, uh, you know, this was medicine. And basically, you bled people, you know, you, you cut them and bled them. And the KPI, the measure of success, was how many times have you bled your patient? It wasn't whether they died or not, you know. And there was a whole... There was a massive science about why bleeding is good for you. You know, the, 
every every place you could be bled on the body. I was a bit rude if I put my head there. Every place you could be you could be bled on the body, um, you know, was numbered. And I was like, it just none of it worked, and people just did it because that's what they'd always done. And then along came, you know, hygiene and and uh, disinfectant and appropriate behaviours, and and it, and it changed. But some people took a long time to get there. They went all step forward at once. It's not how the world is. Thanks very much, Rebecca. Thank you for your question. Thank you. Bring somebody else in now. I'm hoping that is Trevor there, head teacher. And... Yes, I am. I am. How are you? Are you okay? Hi, Stephen. Um, really, really interesting um, presentation and the discussion that we had following that. Um, was was quite interesting. It comes from a very very different perspective from perhaps what an, uh, a secondary school head and a primary school head may talk about in the usual day. So it's been quite refreshing from that point of view. Uh, I really appreciated the 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 time you've given. Um, it was it, one question that came from from a colleague of mine um, who is the head teacher of a infants school. Um, and it's around sort of blended learning for the foundation phase um, because there's, a, there's an increased sort of emphasis and responsibility on parents there to sort of lead and facilitate the learning at home. And there's obviously a disparity between those parents who are very engaged and they're able to provide that to a, to a, a, a high level and other parents who may not be able to. So how do we support those parents to improve engagement um, um, in, in their child's learning to help sort of in, in developing that and support? Yeah, that's a really, it's a really nice question. And it's a two-way street, of course. So uh, on the one hand, there are things that we can help them to know and you know, not very. I mean, very few of our parents know much about phonics. You know, if you um, if you show them the letter L, you know, some of them will say L, some of them will say L, but not many of them will go L. You know, L is a phonics word. You know, phonics sound and not a. So we can help them a bit with that, and and you know, a short, you know, five minute video is a really good thing for helping them with, and a set of resources and so on. But the other side of the coin is a lot of our parents have got things which are of real value. And historically, we've lost the ability to value them in, in education. You think about the the history of Wales, the, you know, I don't care whether you've been working in a slate mine or as a <clears throat> fishing out on Hollyhead or wherever, you know, the, those local skills are really, really valuable. And, you know, if we if we set the tone for our project-based learning right, then there are things that, that you know, that, granddad can tell you about that you know are valuable there's a we we i mean as i said my um daughter runs a beach school here and one of the guys who comes to talk to the kids about oysters is a seventh generation of oyster fishermen you know, seventh generation and what he doesn't know about oysters you, you wouldn't believe but he doesn't know much about the other flora and fauna so you, you have this lovely conversation with him and the kids and the kids are saying oh well the baby crabs are in now so you can they the kids see the season through the, you know, through the activity around. Now, none of that's in the school curriculum formally. So, but it's incredibly valuable. And suddenly our parents here in the, in the town, you know, you know, walking tall because they've got something to contribute. So on the one hand, you know, we've got to let them put their skills and expertise into the mix, whatever it is, you know, on the other hand, we need to help them. You know, I mean, I don't think there's a parent left in, in, in Europe who knows how to do um, uh, 
division with children, you know, it's a complete mystery to them. They what the bleep is all that about, you know? Well, that's, we should have helped them. I mean, and, and again, there's a silly thing that I'm obsessed with, but um, turning the subtitles on, on television. You know, if there's one thing you can do, primary or secondary, to help your kids is turn the subtitles. I mean, Netflix do really good subtitles. BBC aren't so bad. Prime's a bit rubbish. Um, but have the subtitles on the whole time. And, and the, the research is unequivocal. You get literacy by default. But you know what? You get it in the parents as well. So, you know, the family are sitting there watching television and and it's quite amusing sometimes, you know, dramatic music, you know, sort of sighs deeply, you know, comes up. I, I have a friend whose job it is to do those subtitles in real time. She has lots of scurrilous stories to tell, but having them running in the home, you know, helps the kids. But by the way, it also helps the parents. Last thing on this, um, I'm just doing a scoping bit at the moment because... I'm really interested in, in those kids because we used to run Not School, which is a virtual school for kids who've been excluded from school by behaviour and circumstances. And, you know, three, four, two, three, four thousand kids a year for 10 years went through that. Spectacularly effective. And, you know, what we learned was that, that some of those really difficult circumstances make some of the best kids. If you've been listening to Desert Island Discs lately, there's been a couple of really spectacular um, guests, you know, who talk about their, you know, their, their, their childhood in care and, and how it cued them up for a lifetime of, of creativity. So I'm sort of saying, well, we know all this stuff about making the classroom better, paint, light, rosemary, whatever, the right food. How about if we took 200 kids in pretty desperate circumstances, threw all that at them, because it doesn't cost a lot of money. You know, you can you can buy a spider plant for about 30p next time there's a car boot sale you know but if we threw everything at them and worked with them and their parents i wonder how good they could be and um so we're doing that scoping between now and the end of christmas and hope to do a really large scale project on all that that people are probably interested at the moment and kind of the back of the view is that you know a lot of the big companies google and so on have stopped employing people from the traditional top universities and they've stopped employing because they say we just get the same thing you know i've got one of them already i don't need another what they want are people who've come from different backgrounds and different routes so suddenly the whole game is inverted and the the kids that we saw as being in need of our intervention turn out to be some of those valuable things in the community and i think every one of us will have a story about a kid you know who went on to thrive after school and they're the ones that come back, aren't they? Because they're so proud of, you know, you, you had faith in me, so nobody else did. <laughs> and they, they can't wait to show that your faith was well well intended. So, you know, I think the game is changing for those families. And it's about time. Isn't it? really? I'm really passionate about this subject. See, I want to just carry on the conversation with you myself. Now I come from a, a school from Friday, but I'm going to stop myself because I want the others to have some opportunities for questions. Thank you, Trevor. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm just wondering whether, is Edward Jones there? Had a pancoid comp? Yes, but a proud are better. Oh, yeah. Hi. Oh, lovely to meet you. It's okay. You're fabulous. (laughs) Have you got a question for Stephen? Yeah, well, sorry I'm a little bit in the dark here, but I've switched my really horrible fluorescent lights off. (laughs) 
and I, and I fear so much better. Stephen, about about twenty years ago, we were in a meeting in Welsh government, and there was a big fire alarm that went off in Cates Park, and while all the thousands of civil servants panicked about what they were going to do for the next two hours, you just seamlessly walked out into Cates Park, and we sat on a bench, and we carried on. Uh, with that sort of uh, discussion. And I think sometimes we artificially separate the inside learning environment and the outdoor learning environment. So the question that I said I'd ask from our, our group is how do you get sort of members of the school community on board with the idea of trying to improve the learning environment, and particularly with things that, that won't sort of cost money? And when you were talking about classrooms of the future, I suddenly realised, I, I reckon every other school, our school building is from about 1973, and we've got a room here, room 35, that no one wants to teach in because it is the worst, rubbish, rubbishest room. And I'm just thinking, right, can I get a project now? So how do we, how do we galvanise staff to take responsibility for changing their learning environments and getting out of the classroom more often? Well, I'll tell, tell Edward, I'll say, I mean, straight away, I'd let me make you the offer that if you want to get some of your, your colleagues together in that dreadful room, I'd be really happy just to zoom in and talk to them about it. I mean, that's, you know, no cost, no worries. I'd, I'd do that any time. I'd be pleased to do that. Um, but, but the bigger question, of course, is, you know, how do they know it works uh, until they've tried it? So one of the ways, of course, is, um, you know, play to the things that they value. So uh, you, guys, you guys value rugby, so here's... Um, you know, I'm, I'm obviously I'm doing learning for the England rugby team, um, but also for the Team GB Olympic team. And uh, here's a really nice example. So this is this is our uh, Olympic hockey um, team. So this is you know England, Wales, Scotland. This is our Olympic lot. These are the girls. And if you know your hockey, you'll know that uh, in Rio they they won gold. And then been on the podium really before that. So, and if you look at the room, you go, "Well, blimey, Stephen, you've um, you've built them a state-of-the-art primary school." You know, <laughs> the the walls are all writable surfaces. We're we're using the floor for learning. We've got tiered seats, and of course, in those days, everybody could sit close together. You know, and you had a high level of focus. And uh, you'll see if you look at the teacher, the coach. He's um, that's a taught pedagogy there. He's He's put his hands in his pockets and he's stood back because he's a bloke. And if he doesn't put his hands in his pockets, he'll be interrupting, you know, because that's, that's what blokes do, you know. And so he's had to learn to do that. And if you look at the, the, the girls in the team, they're all, you know, the girl here is focused. They're doing penalty corners and they're all focused on the different strategies. And over here on the table, they've also got, um, you know, a, a, a sort of an avatar of a, of a, of, a, of a pitch and even if they go on planes they take a little miniature they undo the, the seat on the plane they put it down they all talk about it so that you know the learning that you see there isn't confined to that space and of course the reason I showed you the rugby lot was because designing learning for them um, which was interesting they're always on the move so it had to be you know it had to be how do you make learning work when you're in somebody else's hotel or somebody else's space and and um, now you might have to edit this bit out of the recording. So I'm just going to say recording stops now. And obviously I'm in Madrid, so I'm working with these folk. And, you know, their, their learning is diabolical. 
you know, they're all sort of sat around the whiteboard about this big, you know, all sitting in a row. Looks like some of those kind of early, early COVID classrooms where, oh, there's a pandemic, we better all sit in rows, you know. And, um, you know, if, you, if you're interested in soccer, you'll see that Real Madrid as a team are hopeless at set pieces, absolutely hopeless because the learning's so bad. Start recording again now. <laughs> Sorry for the folk who missed that bit. You should have been there. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so it's, it's, you know, find the things that interest people. And you'll know if you know your Olympic sport. That in Atlanta, we got one gold medal. And, and in those days, we used to teach um, elite sports by numbers. You know, if this, then that. If that, then this. It was all, mostly the coaches had all come out of the armed forces. And in those days, the armed forces did a very formulaic stuff. Now, of course, they don't. It's a different world. But we got one gold medal in Atlanta. You couldn't even name all the gold medalists in um, in Rio. There were so many of them. And then we were right almost almost at the very top of the table. So, you know, learning works. And, and you know, if they don't believe that, then you get take your bonkers room, you know, that's a, the worst room ever. Turn it into something different. And the... When we, when we did the room in, um, so you can imagine working with colleagues in Spain, you know, some of them are quite formal, some of them are very brave and, and forward-looking. So when we produce a room that looked like, where where is it? I've lost it now. Well, that looked like this or whatever, you know. We had people who were very reluctant to use it. Um, you know, when we did a room that was, um, uh, so who did we get to run the professional development we got the kids to run it. So here you can see this is a really nice example where, you know, these are all my university colleagues and some of the students. Look at the person running the CPD here. It's a little primary school girl. And she's saying, and she's saying, well, you know, we use these, these are called Skype bars. So we've got a you know, row of Skype bars. You sit down and you just talk to other, just as we're doing now, you know. And she's talking about how you use them and how you can be playful with them and, you know, we're sitting here very being very starchy. If we were kids, we'd all have a banana and you know the I'd say, Oh, thank you for the banana and pass it on and you know, so we'd take the banana and pass it down and you know, we'd have the banana going. We'd do kids do loads of fun things with all this. So who better to lead your staff development than the kids, you know. So, you know, I think that's what you do. You you find examples where, you know, fundamentally the aggregation of marginal gains has changed sport forever. And it's changed learning forever as well. We're just not doing it anything like as well. Liverpool Football Club, sorry, last sport analogy, but because I'm working with soccer, Liverpool um, have 11 full-time data scientists working. That's one for every person on the pitch. And their head of data science has a PhD in theoretical physics. And anybody qualified less than that could not do the job he does. And there are two or three clubs in Europe that are doing that, and they're all top of their divisions. You know, and you know, we're just not collecting enough data, really. So let's, you know, let's let's, let's do the job of, you know, if learning was the Olympics, <laughs> we'd be damn sight better at it, <laughs> and nobody would say, but we've always done it like that. We'd say, okay, cool. What can we do new? What can we do new? How can we get on the podium? And that's change of mindset, really. Very interesting. Well, answer, but... It's all there, Stephen. You know our passion, rugby, football here in Wales. I mean, we're very lucky. We've got Laura McAllister joining us for one of these Leadership Unlock sessions in a few weeks. So, you know, it's going to be exciting discussion there. Yeah. Carry on from that point. It's really interesting to look at the sports that have really, 
majored on all that stuff, but putting data into the hands of of children for anything just begins that mindset. You know, the uh, one of my favourite things is um, I run a little um, app on my phone that I'm sure you can find where you hold it up and you see the camera runs. But there, are, there are two lines on the screen and any kid running across your camera, it tells you how fast they're running. So really, you know, if you're out there on playground duty and you simply say, I wonder who's the fastest runner in the school. And I'll tell you what, it's always a girl. It's some little nippy, wiry girl that you never thought was fast. You know, some great alpha blows it, oh, it's bound to be me. It's never them. They can't accelerate, you know. And, you know, but it's interesting because suddenly you're looking at data and you're looking at movement and then you can say, well, I wonder how many, you know, wonder how, you know, wonder how many people arrive early for lessons. I wonder how there's a thousand things you can collect. And then everybody's a researcher and off you go, you know. And that's what happened with sport. They stopped being athlete and coach they became researchers you know. yeah. right thank you thank you very much Edward for your question I think if I can ask is Justine there Justine Barlow Welshpool Primary School are you there hello oh she is there have you got a question it's, just, it's Justine Baldwin Justine Baldwin sorry <laughs> not, not, not that important similar letters different order <laughs> Uh, no, thank you very much. Thanks for this. It's a fascinating morning. Absolutely loving it. Thank you so much. Um, I think maybe this question has partly been answered already when, when we're talking to Trevor. But what we were talking about was your comment, Stephen, right at the very beginning when you were talking about the, um, the breadth and the depth of learning, with the indication being that the breadth of learning happened at school and the depth of learning happened at home. And what we were wondering about was how does this work when the families may be in a deprived situation and perhaps don't have the resources, whatever those resources are, financial or, um, you know, social, cultural, capital, whatever, to facilitate that deep learning that we that we were aiming for. Yeah, no, you're right. I have partly talked about that, but let's just go a little further into it because, you know, we I live in a very rural coastal area here and the, you know, the depth that comes from, you know, teachers as well. I mean, we all remember a teacher who was, uh, you know, was, was easily led off down a path of more, go on, so tell us more about Antarctica and your your expedition, and they, they wouldn't stop because the curriculum has got busier and busier and squeezed some of that out. We did a we did a thing in the 90s, and it's on my website if you search. Well, I'll put a, I'll put a link on the web page. <laughs> <Hang on. laughs> um, where we asked a 1,000 people, or we asked people in groups of a 1,000 about, their best learning experience ever. And there were some interesting characteristics which I think apply to that depth, whether it's in the community or in the school or wherever. Firstly, of course, people always did it with others. There's very little um, deep learning that happens just on your own unsupported, you know. So secondly, you had an audience for what you did. And that seems to me to be very important. A lot of those kids feel... They've not done anything at home that's valuable enough for people to want to see. You know, they don't bring much to the show and tell. They don't have, you know, they don't have parents helping them make their cardboard castles or whatever, you know. So they, you know, giving them an audience for what they've done really important. But but also it had to be hard. You know, you did something and you thought, you, you know what, I've done that. You know, yes, the... The, the 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 you know to be a bit academic for a minute you know we talk about criterion referencing and normative referencing but I really like ipsative referencing ipsative which is 
measuring it against myself. I feel that I've made progress. I know I'm learning. I think, you know what, I could never do that before. Now look at me. You know, that's a that's a powerful motivator. So because it doesn't say where you are, it says where you want to go, you know, and there's a real but the most interesting thing is that everybody reported. Um there was a teacher or a coach or a parent, and they were a bit crazy. I mean, bluntly, you know, they were a bit mad about um, you know, terminal moraines, or they were, you know, obsessed with you know, the you know, they were so obsessed with rhyme scheme, they'd read you Julia Donaldson room on the broom and then do a rhyme scheme. <laughs> look how complicated it is. And look, it's just like Andrew Marvell, you know. They were completely bonkers. But but their but their passion was the thing that gave you the depth. And I think, you know, we we've got to be very careful as school leaders. And I know there are folk here from the community services and youth services as well. And they're in a really good spot because because the adults they have coming into those services are, you know, they're not they haven't been boxed in with that passion. They haven't got they don't have to have a dress code, you know, they don't have to have is that behaviour appropriate? They just come in and they're they're just passionate about drumming or whatever. I used to and when I taught, I taught for a long time. South London, East London, you know, and I used to teach in the day in the school and at night in college. It was really, really hard up, you know. <laughs> I used to teach motor vehicle mechanics, you know, and they, they, did, they knew more than I could ever know about motor vehicle mechanics, but they didn't know anything about technology. So I taught them all to program and do a whole lot of other things because I was passionate about it, you know, and they all went on to do extraordinary things that they couldn't have done in school, you know. So you need that injection of, of you know, passion and and expertise I, I think there's some FE folk in the audience as well and you know a lot of my engineering skills I kind of kind of eclectic path through school I did I did everything you know but you know they were taught to me by people who'd been motor racing engineers and you know sport was I, I was taught by um Bruce Tullow you know Olympic sports star and so on so you know you need people who are proven to be passionate and good at their stuff and I think we've been very careful we need to be very careful not to eliminate those from our from our staff and you know but they're there they're, they're there with the caretaking staff the ladies in the kitchen I was describing in in uh, in Spain who just you know were passionate about food and had a lot to offer so you know just look around your community of learners and see who you've got that can bring that depth and that passion and you'll be surprised of course it includes parents and grandparents too. I've become obsessed with grandparents in learning because of Spain, you know, grandparents are the ones who look after the children in Spain, as I do. I live with my grandchildren here, you know. So yeah, that's where that comes from. Mm. Very interesting. Thank you, Stephen. Again, I'm going to read a question that I can see in the chat there that's come from Derry Hughes and his group there. Um, Thank you, Justine. It follows on there with what you said about um, your experience. Uh, you've worked in many countries across the world with varying climates. Have you studied or are you able to describe the physiological impact, positively or negatively, a learning experience in a cold climate such as Scandinavia compared with climates with intense heat? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, yes, I, as, as Mick will tell you, one of the advantages of being old is you always say, oh, yeah, I've done that, you know. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, of course, we've, um, I've had, so uh, the furthest I've been north in learning has been, Right up in Tromso in um, in Norway, so above the Arctic Circle, and and the same in in um, 
in Alaska. I won't tell you about Alaska. It was a strange, strange experience. Mostly people had run away from civilization, you know, but, but it was really, really, really cold in Tromso. So cold that we did an evening session for families and afterwards nobody could walk across the road because there'd been a little bit of rain and the road was like three inches of bottle ice and then with water on top, you couldn't stand on it. So everybody had to go across the road on their hands and knees. And I, I wish to this day I'd remembered to take out a phone and take a photograph of a, an entire school, you know, crawling out of the building, you know. But I also do work, obviously, with um, Indigenous folk in, in Australia. I'm doing work now with a school in Alice Springs, you know. So, And they're proper hot. Now, this is really interesting because physiologically we haven't evolved that much you know, the first folk we now think um, came out of India, actually, not Ethiopia, and then sort of started walking around the world. And, you know, people have evolved a bit more, you know, melanin in their skins, bigger nostrils or whatever, for different weathers. Um, but we haven't evolved that much. So we know that the best temperature for learning is 18 to 21 degrees, and that really doesn't seem to vary. Um, you know, 18 degrees is pretty good. It's, it's 17 in here at the moment so I'm just a degree cooler but that's okay because the window's open and blah 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 you know um, every degree over 23 mm. so 21 you want 18 21 when you get to 23 every degree over 23 the cognitive performance in terms of maths we've only got the data for maths because it's really easy to measure but the cognitive performance goes down a straight line so every degree over 23 is as damaging as the previous and the next one and it's quite a steep line, you know. So if you've got your you've got your exam room and you're running it over, you're running your exam room at 25 degrees, you might as well walk around and tear the back page off everybody's paper. You know, that's the kind of damage you do. I mean, it's huge of this stuff. It's not just little, you know, particularly secondary kids. So, but what we do find, of course, is the cultural thing is, uh, so we're doing work in, in Yemen and Saudi Arabia, which has been, been very interesting. In Saudi, they... They have some slightly strange cultural thing of sticking paper on the windows. It's always black paper and it's always patterned. So the rooms get incredibly hot because the sun, you know, the, the black paper works like a radiator and the sun heats up. And of course, that's led me then to come back into our classrooms and realize that we have a lot of teachers who like to put windows, paper on their windows. I really don't know why. It's to do with privacy, I guess. But the one thing you can do as a group today is to go back and order your school. Glass means glass is a really good phrase, you know. And what I do is I say to the caretaking staff, on a Friday, anything that's on glass, put it in the bin, it's finished with. And that kind of focuses people's minds pretty quick, you know. Um, but, you know, you need the light coming in and the glass, the, the paper heats up, it makes the room worse, you know. So there are some cultural things we can learn as we look around the world. And they're more significant, I think, than the... Um, I'm curiously, if you look at indigenous cultures, and this would probably apply even for some of the traditional um, communities in, in Europe. There's a lot to learn about um, learning from them. You know, they have, they have you know, the, the elders, you know, validate the learning of the youngsters and the youngsters try to, try to stand on the shoulders of giants. They tend to, they, need, they need knowledge before they can be ingenious with it. So they get the knowledge early. There's a lot, a lot we can learn from all that, you know, that got a little bit lost with the kind of industrialization of learning 
in the last century. It's also interesting. I think we could go on for another hour with all these oh, questions. Yeah, one more very, very quick one before we just ask you just to sum up very quickly because it's 25 past now. So can I just ask, is Alison Ellis, are you there? Yes. Oh, she is. <laughs> um, thank you, Stephen. You gave us a lot of food for thought and there was so much discussion in our group from lighting to outside. Um, innovation and creativity was a strength we recognise in our teachers and we discussed as well in our group the fact that of all of our pupils that have, uh, have they've wanted to come back to school and so now we want to harness this engagement as we move into the future but our question really was how can we communicate to our parents and to other groups as well as to what pedagogy and innovative learning is really like in school as it's very different from the message at the moment that's going out about sitting in rows, online synchronous learning. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, how, how do we get that across to parents? Well, it's, it's, a key, it's a key question, really important, because we need them to be on, on board and they've, they've clearly enjoyed I mean, one of the surprises for me, a lovely surprise in our local school, I pick the girls up from school from time to time with my mask on, you know, but seeing people after the lockdown, seeing parents and the kids coming out, the parents saying, I've really missed you, was a really nice thing to to see, you know, because, um, you know, so they've, they've enjoyed being part of the thing. So, you know, we really do need teacher training for parents. We do need to show them one of the best way, I think, to do it. And... If you follow me on Twitter, you know, I'm just at Stephen Heppel on Twitter, but a number of people lately have been doing virtual tours of their school. There's a whole lot that are up there. And they're really good for induction. They're very good for, um, you know, when you've got a kid joining the school. You know, and, and you don't do it as one long walk. You know, you get children to, you know, to get, get their sort of phone and just do a, you know, panorama or a little video of their space. And they talk about what's special there, and they might, you know, they they pick up. Look, this is um, this is from an actual video of some some kids who were doing just that with me the other day. Um, where have they gone? Um, yeah, and they they were um, they were making a big thing about where yeah, we've got lids on our school toilets because I, I, I'm sure you've heard me go on about this online before. But if you if you if you flush the toilet with a lid open the aerosol plume that's created by the toilet goes about six metres and it's properly dangerous. So you've got, you know, I'm down to B&Q, get yourself a set of new toilet seats with lids, give them to the caretaker, get him to put them on and have the children in the habit of shut them flush, shut them flush. You know. And the kids wanted to feature that because they were so proud of their, their toilet flushing that they'd learned to do. And also the fact that they... You know, they only ever go into the toilet in twos and they wear their masks. And so what they choose to show is always a surprise to you. But but they, they show the pedagogy and they show the learning and they show they get the kids to do the kind of day in the life of our learning spaces and assemble it into a sort of map of the school. And parents will look at that in droves. And, and by the way, you know, when you're appointing staff, you can say to them just before the interview, just go around the school and have a look at the kids eye view of the school and you know, you'll know, you'll know who we are. Um, I don't want to point you by mistake and then find you're saying, but I've always had a teacher's desk, you know, why can't I have it now? You know, well, we don't have teacher desks in our school or whatever, you know, so it's a really good way of showing who you are in a really nice way. And the kids love to do that. And again, it's part of that 
that metacognition, that learning about learning. If they're sitting there thinking, this is good, but it could be better. That's a really, that's a powerful way to accelerate their learning. And you don't want to do it. They'll do it for you. And they'll put it in here, you know. There's a lot of kids doing interesting stuff in TikTok, just in passing. There's probably more new learning going into TikTok. TikTok had just spent $15 million on what they're calling micro-learning. Little tiny one-off things where they're just saying, send to people. Look, I'll give you a silly example here. Since we've got to do a bit of teaching, you know. <laughs> if I said to you, um, I wonder if you'll be able to see this. That's, yeah. Well, different, different pen. If I said to you, why are the numbers the shape they are? You know, it's a really good question, isn't it? Sort of thing. And they're, they're, they're the shape they are because um, it's all about inside angles. So number one has a, the number one has one inside angle. Number three has one, two, three inside angles. You know, number two has one, two and eight has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight inside angles. You know, you can, you can do that kind of stuff in 30 seconds in TikTok. And the kids love it, you know. So it's quite interesting, I think, if you if you said to them, I don't, I don't know what your attitude to TikTok is, but um, like everything in schools, we, we confiscate it first and then realise too late it was useful, you know. <laughs> but it's really quite good. <laughs> and, um, you know, get them, get them showing off stuff in there, you know. Stephen, we want to go on and on and on, but it's oh, not. Could, yeah. And I know that quite a lot of you have to go and do lunchtime duty. I know that. I know. So I'm just get that app out. Get them running across your thing. Oh, uh, <laughs> their lives have got to get back. Thank you all so much for joining us, Stephen. Have you got a very, very brief just to sum up? I have one one simple sentence to say, really, which is, which is really only to to reflect on. Um, you know, the, the kind of world we're in at the moment, and it's a world it's a world where a lot of kids are having a tough time with learning. Uh, 2.2 billion children in the world, only about 1.1, about half of them are having any kind of education. A lot of the rest get a little bit of primary, not much else. So we're very lucky. We In Spain, we run a project for um, refugees, and uh, we bring them and give them a free degree, and, and, and we learn from them as they learn from us. And one of the things... I learned from them is how tough it is. I remember one of them saying to me, um, he said, I, you know, I'd started a university for one day and then they bombed the, the lecture room I was in. And he, he said, I climbed out over the severed limbs of my classmates. He's the only one to get out of the room alive. Climbed out over the limbs of his classmates. He said, I tried to stay sane by working out whose, whose leg was who, whose arms was who. He said, and he sat outside and he cried like a baby. And he said, to his shame, he was crying for himself, not for his classmates. Now, the reality of, of of learning for an awful lot of kids is diabolical. And here we are, wealthy United Kingdom, stable Wales, you know, you haven't had a you know, Aberfan, we've just had the <clears throat> we've just had the anniversary. We had there weren't many disasters between Aberfan and now, you know. So what do we do with all that stability and wealth and opportunity in these wonderful communities we've got? You know, and <clears throat> and the the stimulation of poverty and the opportunity of sport. What do we do with all that? And the answer has to be that we make learning better for everybody. And that means it's got to be cheap or something in their question. So we ain't got any money. The, the less money you've got, the better. If you've got not much money, you have to make tough decisions. You've got too much money. You just buy everything and it doesn't work. So, you know, we have a kind of moral imperative 
city on our shoulders to do this well for communities as well as children, for villages as well as schools, for families as well as companies, and to do it cheaply and to do it in a way that's inspiring. You know, our kids are going to face a lifetime of uncertainty. They're going to face COVID. They're going to face superstorms coming across the Atlantic. And they're going to face water shortages, food migration, toilet roll shortages, because those what? You know, we need every kid to be hands on deck with their brains as good as they can be to help with this. And that means we need to help the rest of the world with all this. So, you know, you're going back to your schools and, and, and it's hard work. I know how hard it is. And you get to do little things, I hope, from today, the things you can do right away. Just write to your parents and tell them to turn on the subtitles, you know. But in doing all that, you're making a hell of a difference to that world out there that don't have your luck. And that really, really matters. So go back and do something. It's helpful. That's all. Oh, Diolch and Val Ryan, Stephen, huge thanks. It's been an absolute privilege once again um, to have you working with us at the Leadership Academy and this webinar. Once again, um, talking to our leaders across Wales has been absolutely brilliant. And we are so honoured to have had uh, your company uh, this morning. Tan ysgrifiwch ar Spotify, podlediadau Apple neu Google a pheidiwch byth â cholli penod. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leadership Academy podcast. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts and never miss an episode.